0: We're going to stand together for the reading of God's word, and the passage for today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot. Or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish this is the reading of God's Word you may be seated so you might be wondering why to begin the year I'm addressing husbands and the answer is I'm not I'm sort of but not really what I'm really doing is addressing what it means for Jesus to love his people And when we consider the Bible, we have to understand that there are essentially two parallel stories being told simultaneously from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. The first is what we read if you were to start a reading plan of the Bible. You'll notice that there are historical events that are unfolding through time, from the beginning of time to the infinite amount of time to the end of the days and so those events that are being unfolded are historical they're um, listing an operation of events of real events in real space in real time So that's one parallel track But the second is also as we saw when we were covering spiritual warfare is that there is a spiritual track That spiritual track is not mythological It's not a fable it's not simply a moral of a story. It's another reality. And we've been discussing the idea that that spiritual track is at least, if not more, of a reality to this world and the life that we live than what we physically face. One example of this is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Because often you'll hear this passage preached to husbands about marriage, and absolutely that is true. That is one parallel track that must be addressed when we speak on this passage. But we tend to think of the secondary aspect of it as secondary. We think that Jesus' love for his bride, the church, is really a sort of a corollary to the, the ultimate message that Paul is trying to give here, which is, Husbands roles in loving their wife as Christ loved the church I want to flip that around because I do think that first of all you're going to understand um, Marriage actually better when you first understand what it means for Jesus to love the church That is to say that husbands will not know how to love their wives at all unless you understand How Jesus loves the church? secondly is that if you understand how Jesus loves the church then this message is not just for husbands, but it's for wives as well. It has that dual purpose. So in every way, it benefits us when we really grab hold of what Paul is trying to tell us, not simply about marriage, but about what it means to be God's people, his bride, the bride of Christ. And in doing so, it will serve us, I hope, to go forward especially in this year upcoming so with this in mind i'd like to look at three ways that this passage speaks specifically about how jesus loves his bride first jesus loved the church in its worst state second jesus gave himself up for the church and then third is that jesus will present his church his bride to the father as cleansed whole and transformed So I want to first look at Jesus loving the church in its worst state. And we see this, especially in verses 25 through 26. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And in this verse, these two verses, I see an assumption. The assumption is that the church, the bride, needed to be washed clean. It needed to be sanctified, and that word sanctified is a very, very strong word. It's a, a power wash, you might say, because the dirt and the slime is so deep, so great, and if you've ever experienced some sort of soiling that runs so deep in your clothing that no matter how much you rub or what type of chemicals you use, it just never seems to be fully clean, never as white as it used to be. White is never as white as it once was when it was soiled so terribly. And so what Paul is saying is that the church is so soiled, so defiled, so filthy, so sick, so diseased that it needs more than simply a bath. It needs a radical transformation. And I know we people as human beings do not think or like to think of ourselves in such a way. That is to say that when we talk about ourselves as sinners, we have a hard time really evaluating what that looks like because at the core of our being, there is still that part of us that says, I'm not as bad as the Bible makes me out to be, that I'm not as truly to use the words that so often we hear in the old hymns, the word vile or we're a worm. Now I'm talking about someone who is not in Christ. And those words just seem so degrading. So we don't like using those words, especially in a society like ours. But this type of spiritual blindness is what ultimately keeps us from understanding our need for Christ. It's what plagued the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes of Jesus' day. And it's why he so regularly spoke out against them. It wasn't because they were trying to zealously follow God. It was because they couldn't see the depth of their sin. Mark records for us this picture in Mark 2, verses 16 through 17. Because for, for the people who were around the disciples and for the Pharisees themselves, they saw there were two classes of people. There were sinners and non-sinners. The non-sinners were the Pharisees, the religious people. And actually, even the disciples were sort of non-sinner-like because they were generally good people. But it's the tax collectors. You know the collaborators with the Roman government it's the drunkards the prostitutes those who visibly look sinful they're the really really bad people they're the sinners but definitely not the disciples weren't that bad and the Pharisees surely were better than the disciples so they just couldn't get it and that is the general theme of the Bible What makes godly people is not that they're morally superior than others, that they sin less than others. What makes godly people is that they've experienced the lowest of the lows. They saw their need for a saving God. They recognized that there was a sense of desperation in them, and their only hope was God and God alone. Truly, he was the only one who had the power to save. That's the whole Bible. We might look at the Bible and read about all the different characters and only see faith as being moral faith. But there's another lens that you could look at the Bible with and examine all the people of the Bible and you see actually a bunch of desperate sinners. Moses, he was called a friend, of, he, he was greater than Any person really saw God face to face. But remember how Moses began the story? What does he do? He kills an Egyptian man. And when he's found out, he runs away into the desert in fear. David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of his brothers. So young that his brothers easily dismissed him when he said, I will fight Goliath. He was really no one special. And then even after he becomes king, he commits adultery. He murders someone, all to take on his wife. Isaiah, before he begins his ministry, sees God in a vision, is, is so personally struck by how sinful he is that he cries out in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he sees the fullness of God's holiness, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I don't think Isaiah is saying that just in false modesty. When he looked at the depth of his soul, he saw the darkness of his soul. Peter, so boastful about himself, so arrogant, and yet he denies Jesus three times, and weeps because he finally understands he needed a Savior. Paul, he lists all of his righteousness in Philippians chapter 3. And only when he met Jesus on the Damascus road, on his way to imprison and kill Christians, Does he finally come to see the darkness of his own heart? The list really goes on and on. So the Bible is not filled with a bunch of morally perfectly righteous people who only do, quote, holy things, but it's filled with sinners who are actually seeing the depth of their sin and realize they need a Savior. My friends, I believe that so many of us do not really know the true and living Christ. Not really. Because we just do not truly think we need him. Not at the core of our being. We might need him half of the time. Maybe 65% of the time. Maybe 83% of the time. But not 100% of the time. We don't think we need him because internally there is still this, I'm morally enough, I'm righteous enough, I'm religious enough, I'm good enough. And the way we know that this comes out is when trial comes. And when trial comes, if there's ever the instinct to say, but God, I did this for you. I live this type of life. Why is this happening to me? If we ever have that question, that means there's something internally within us that says, I, I've done this for you, therefore I deserve this in return. So that means we haven't realized enough that Christ didn't love us in our mediocre state, but in our worst state, not in a bad state, in our worst possible state. That's the message of Ephesians 5. The beauty of the church is that it's filled with a bunch of people in its worst state. And it's the only place in the world where anyone should be welcomed and accepted, not on the basis of anything that they have done or not done. There is no status accomplished by us no reputation, nor no demerit or great evil great enough that should keep someone outside these doors. You and I were loved not when we were most clean, strong, good, righteous, moral, but you were loved in your most defiled, vile, um, worst state. And only when we see that can we realize, wow, that's, that's a great love. You know, we're getting closer and closer to finishing this church building and it's as, um, I'm so excited for the day that we actually clean everything and make it look instead of me looking around and looking at all the different construction supplies that have been in here for so long. But as, as different, as challenging as, I mean, as much as people have been working recently, Noticed a few things. As beautiful as the building looks on the inside, I noticed some rat droppings around. And we set up some rat traps, and thus far we've caught three. I know that probably makes you think, I don't want to go to that building. <laughs> and it's possible there's more. We've had to hire an exterminator. <laughs> but I tell you this story because inside this beautiful place are rat droppings. And rats and isn't that what our hearts can be like our lives can be like we can look beautiful we can be well put together we can be well educated have a great job Have a beautiful house have a gr- externally look like we have a great marriage in fact you know when it comes to Christmas cards I'm so thankful for all your Christmas cards and all the Facebook pictures and Instagram posts but I always see beauty but if you're like me, there's always rat droppings around. The most filthy rat droppings are vile. They're filthy. They're disease-ridden rats. And that's what the Lord is dealing with when he's dealing with people like us, the Pharisees. Out, outside, he said it himself, that there's you can look beautiful, but inside you're whitewashed tombs. And that doesn't mean much to us, but it's beautiful building, but rat droppings all around. Disgusting. That's how Jesus loves us. He doesn't love us when we look only great, He loves us in our most defiled state. So may you never forget that one time before Christ, you were in such a defiled state, and yet He still came into your life and He still said, I'm going to rescue you. And until you come to that place of really needing him, then you'll only look good on the outside. But internally, something is deeply wrong. Second is that Jesus gave himself up for his church. We see this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul uses that phrase, Christ gave himself because he's intending to stress Jesus intentionally, purposefully giving himself, his life. We see this very specifically with his death on the cross. Paul's already expressed this in Ephesians chapter five, verse two earlier on in verse two. He said, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So clearly, according to that verse, Paul wants us to note that Jesus sacrifices himself. He gives everything to a people who do not love him, but are defiled. Galatians 2.20 gives us the same idea. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave gave himself up for me. When we speak of God... These are our beloved giver. And do not think of all of the different blessings we enjoy in this world as matching that type of giving. It will never come close. Think of it this way. If God only gave his son, and if he only gave himself up for you, and did nothing else, then you would infinitely be richer. There is no greater treasure than for God to give himself up for you. And so therefore, the person who understands first their defiled state, Christ giving Himself up for you, means that there is nothing else that can happen in your life that you would say, God, you don't love me. Because if I say, God, you don't love me, but I know that I was in my most defiled state, I know that he's given himself up for me, then whether I lose my family, whether they are all unsaved, whether I have a house or whether I'm impoverished or whether I've lost my job or I've lost uh, usage of my physical body or I'm disabled and in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, if I have Christ who gave himself up for me, I was in my most defiled state and eternally I am with him. That should always temper how I understand the trials that I face. But it really calls us to believe that actually those first two things are true. They're real. They make a difference to me. You see, the world tries to depict love in a way in which it's always reciprocated equally based on our understanding of love. But that love always falls short. Christ's love is a rescuing, sacrificial, giving himself up for you love. And it withholds nothing. It's intentional. It's focused. He keeps his eyes fixed on the bride and on his father's glory. And that's what keeps him going. And it says in Luke chapter 9 that his eyes are set towards Jerusalem because he knows why he's going there. He knows why he's going to the cross. He knows that even though agony and abandonment await him, nothing will keep him from fulfilling the mission because of the love that he has. He loved us and gave himself up for us. Thirdly is that Jesus will present his church as cleansed, whole, and transformed. Look at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy, and without blemish. One thing you have to consider is, what causes these spots and wrinkles and defects in the first place? Why are these so bad that Jesus would have to give his life in order for these spots to be cleansed? First, recognize that for a Jew, the spots and wrinkles that Paul is referring to, automatically they go back to the sacrificial system. Because God had commanded through Moses and Moses' law that when they try to atone for their sins, they are to present these animals that are spotless, unblemished. And here's the question. Why? Does God hate birthmarks? If so, I'm in big trouble. (laughs) You know, why, why does, why does God have such a problem with blemishes on these animals that he would not accept them? Well, we know according to the Bible that God cares nothing for animal sacrifice. The animal sacrifice are always, they're symbolic. He cares about the significance of these animals that are being sacrificed by the people of Israel. He doesn't care about the sacrifice itself, but by what it means. And what it means is that when people sinned against a holy God who is righteous and just, from Adam onward, those sins created a blemish in our hearts, a spiritual blemish. As dark as any darkened birthmark could ever be, far worse is, as I said, a stain that could not be rubbed out by anything. And so it's so deeply embedded that nothing we ever did, just as much as you tried to use chemicals or rub as hard as you can to remove a spot on a, on a stained piece of clothing, so too when we are sinning, we cannot remove that. It would be like trying to remove those uh, microscopic asbestos fibers from lung tissue with pliers, and we just can't do it. And so only unblemished, unspotted animals could temporarily symbolize the aversion of God's wrath, to say that for the moment, God will accept these as symbols of a the heart of a worshiper who says, I'm going to sacrifice this even though it's valuable. It takes effort to bring this to the temple. And by doing so, I do it because I know I have sinned against the Lord. But we know that even that's not good enough. We, we learn this from Hebrews 10.4, which says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats... To take away sins. So we know that it's not good enough. It was temporary. This sacrificial system of unblemished animals. Second is that these spots and wrinkles, they're not cosmetic blemishes. Rather, I want you to think of malignant skin cancer with lesions and sore, open sores, festering cancerous wounds. It's, there's no hope of survival, 100% fatality. It will take an absolute miracle to survive that. When it says 100%, the only thing that could overcome 100% is something that's more powerful than 100%. And it's not going to be chemo that restores the skin. It's going to take brand new skin from the outside, miraculously. There is, it's just too much sunbathing with oil. Only a few of you know what I'm talking about. But the, the damage is real. It takes transformation. And spiritually speaking, it required something so radical that the blood of goats and bulls could not satisfy it. It took God the Son. It took Jesus presenting himself himself as the sacrificial offering it's not the church presenting itself so everything we do as a church on sundays even if you come every sunday even in this season where you're saying i have not yet once missed worship i come maybe you're coming instead of coming in pajamas right now you're wearing you know nice clothing you're you're doing literally everything and in your heart you're thinking i'm actually pretty good i'm pretty righteous You know, all of that does nothing inherently just in and of itself for our souls. Instead, it's a response. Because nothing we do, we cannot present ourselves well enough to save ourselves. Christ had to present himself to the Father. And notice what he does is he doesn't just present himself. He presents the church. And he presents the church transformed, anew, spotless, pure, undefiled, cleansed. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says exactly this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and here's the important part, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from what? From an evil conscience, evil. Now that's a very strong word. It's meant to say that, can you say to yourself, I am evil? I'm not saying in Christ you are, but prior to Christ, you are evil. And that evil conscience is, has been cleansed and washed, our bodies washed with pure water. Very similar words to what Paul refers to in Ephesians 5. So Christ has cleansed us through his blood, washed us, presents us not as, now here's a really big takeaway. You're not defiled anymore. You're undefiled. You're being presented that way to the Father, sanctified, cleansed, pure. What was uh, the, the stain that was unremovable has been removed. Not perfectly right now, but forensically, legally, yes, in this moment. But now this process of sanctification is the cleansing. And when we see the Lord face to face, there is no more spot, defilement, No matter what you've done, all gone forever and ever. So that is this righteousness that we have been given, this holiness. So the question is, how will we respond? I can't leave without saying one word here to husbands, because I do think that this passage is about husbands. So if Jesus loved you, husband, this way, and then Paul says this, and this is how you must love the church. Notice, Jesus doesn't love the church when they're worthy, when they've done something good, when they've been righteous. They love the church in their worst state. So what does it say for us husbands? What a hard call, isn't it? Again, I often, when I think about Ephesians 5, I think most of us think about Ephesians 5 from the context of Wives, submit to your husbands. That's such a hard, difficult phrase for women, for wives. But I look at this and I think, how does a husband love his wife when she, and especially when she's at her worst? When she's most difficult to you? When she's most unloving? It's so easy for us to say, well, we should respond in turn. We should also then Righteously pay back the, the feelings that a wife is giving towards us. But if we do that, we're missing this whole parallel. And when Paul says, husbands, you must love your wife this way, as Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? When they were in their most defiled state, when they didn't deserve love, when they weren't good enough, when they actually betrayed and were unfaithful. So, husbands, do you love your wife this way? Are you always fighting for your rights? Are you always saying, you got to change, wife, and then I'll love you as Christ. Loved no. See, that absolutely misses the whole point of the passage. The point of the passage is, husbands, you love your wife regardless of what she's like. And you, you can't say, but that's so hard. I can't do that. The reason why it's so hard is because we don't understand Christ's love for us enough. Husbands, if we're real and honest with ourselves, that's true. Now, I didn't, again, my purpose of preaching this was not to give a message to husbands uh, about how to love their wives. But I don't think we can walk away from this without that as a, one of the key components of application here is to recognize that. We have to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And if we don't do that, we don't understand Christ's love for us. Secondly is that, how can we not worship Christ? How can we not trust him and obey him when this kind and gracious Savior has so loved us this way? I always think such passages are points of preparation for us. They prepare us for those times where it is most difficult to respond with love and kindness and mercy. Maybe during times of trial, during times where we've been hurt, maybe we've been um, left behind due to rejection, loneliness, the challenges, or in this season of worry and anxiety and fear. It's so important more than ever before that we remember Christ's love for us and that we are able to trust him and say, I will obey. Even an obedience, by the way, never comes with feelings. It just doesn't work that way. You need to obey simply because you know it to be true. Because you know truth, you act regardless of your feelings. And because we know that Christ loved us in this way while we were in our most defiled state, then we decide I'm going to obey and trust him and I'm going to follow him all my days, no matter what happens. And whether you are facing that right now in this moment due to a trial that you are currently facing or one that will come, get ready. Remember the truth. I want to point you to Isaac Watts' beautiful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Because I think this hymn so, so rightly speaks to what it means when we know the truth of what God has done, we then respond. Because when I survey the Wondrous Cross, when I remember what he has done for me, when I remember that I am defiled, I am sinful, then the response is, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And then the, the, another verse says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Demands my soul, my life, my all. That only makes sense if you remember the title of the song, the first words, when I survey the wondrous cross. And for the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, that's exactly what he's doing. He's surveying the wondrous cross. And when he surveys it, when he contemplates it, when he meditates on it, when he makes it his own, he becomes so desperate for him. And then when he realizes that God has rescued him and has given him everything, then he says, it's so amazing, your love. It's so extraordinary, supernatural, that I'm going to give my life my all. 2021 is here. And this year, I challenge you to consider that, to give in ways that you cannot ever do. I want to close with this story. I actually shared it with my family last night. Is we were... Uh, um considering the poor widow who gave but two mites and she gives these two pennies and Jesus is watching and you know some most of you know the story where Jesus says i gave um these people who walked along wealthy people they gave but they always gave out of their plenty this woman gave out of everything that she had And Sinclair Ferguson, it's a devotional book that we're using as a family and he tells, he asks the question, have you ever essentially opened up your wallet and given everything? And and as I was sharing this with my family, there's one time that I can remember in my life that I opened up my wallet and gave everything. And it was at a time where we really had very little money as a a family. Um, And the the time was in Toronto and I was at a, a wedding and then went to a church service and the speaker was talking about, this is in 2003, uh, the speaker was talking about HIV AIDS in Africa. And after he had done that, I was so moved. I just took my wallet, whatever I had, all the cash was like, I don't know, maybe like $150, which for me at that time was a lot of money and pulled it out and just said, Lord, they need this much more than I do. You know, the Lord is so amazing because the only time I ever did that, it was to a person who knew about this man named George sneeman And he basically um, connected me to George. And I called him, I had no idea who he was called them just randomly, not randomly, but providentially in, in Africa and said, hey, I heard about this, so can you tell me more? And I tell that story not to lift up anything I've ever done, but just to say this is that there are sometimes those times where you, you are so struck by what God has done for you that you just say, I'm just going to give. And you give and God blesses you in ways that you could not ever imagine. Who could have imagined that in 2003 that I would have been convicted to give whatever little money I had in my wallet and from there all the different ways that God has blessed us through our partnership with Hands in Africa. And that all came from just a small, little, teeny uh, openness to what God was doing. I'm praying that 2021 is that year for us as we open our building, and as we open this building, not to just enjoy a bunch of programs, but that we would survey the wondrous cross. And by doing so, we would open our hearts and give. Give when it's risky, when it's hard, when we're weak, when we're not feeling well, when there's a lot of fear and anxiety, when you're not certain, when it's not safe, That's when we give the most. And when you do so, the gospel's advanced. We understand Christ when he gave when it was risky, when it was vulnerable, when he was putting himself out there so that he could show that God, Christ, gave himself up for us. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. Thank you for loving us. Through your son, Jesus. Thank you for the ways that you have given yourself. Lord Jesus, you loved us and gave yourself up for us. The church. One thing we know is the church is defiled. It was. Before Jesus, you died for us. We had no hope. We were utterly destitute. Evil consciences, as Hebrews tells us. Enemies of God, as Paul tells us in Romans. But while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us. You gave yourself up so that you might present us to the Father as pure and spotless, transformed, holy. Help us to survey this wondrous cross this year, O Lord. May we not be stuck with simply being satisfied with moral righteousness, with religious practices and duties that makes us feel better th- than we really think we are. And actually, it keeps us from experiencing grace upon grace. So Lord, use Wellspring Church to be a, a light in the midst of darkness, to be a means by which both our local community and the global Our world around us would know Christ more in this year. Lord, cause us to be brave, to be courageous, to be a people who will fight, who will uh, fight for faithfulness. May we trust you. May we obey you even when we don't feel like it. May we trust you when it's not safe, when it's not, um, when it's not comfortable. I thank you for the many who have done that this past year. And I pray that you would give us the confidence and hope to do so in this new year so that Christ might be exalted even to the ends of the earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.